Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Netanyahu no more. A kaleidoscope coalition in Israel threatens to oust the prime minister. Meme madness. AMC shares slump on new supply, but still up almost 100% this week. And from Delhi to D.C., the co-founder of Indian startup Baidu looking to educate America. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Thursday as we enter what feels like a parallel universe with free beer on offer as America attempts to vax to the max. Quote, free popcorn on offer if you buy cinema stocks and relax cannabis testing requirements give a whole new spin to the term employee hiring. Hire. Yes, I tried. Speaking of highs, none of that lifting U.S. majors to higher highs. In fact, as you can see, futures are under pressure in the United States. We'll call it consolidation, I think, and a bit of de-risking ahead of tomorrow's key U.S. jobs report. New numbers before the bell show private employers adding a better than expected 978,000 new positions last month with big gains in leisure and in the hospitality sector, too. It's not typically the ADP, a good indicator for Friday's jobs report, but we are hoping for stronger numbers after the labor letdown we saw in the numbers back in April. The lack of job creation, at least on a relative basis, remains an occupational oddity given the level of demand, with critics, of course, saying unemployment benefits are the big impediment here, and that then forces firms to offer generous incentives to lure those employees back. It's simply going to take time, I think, to get a clear read on what's going on for the economy. But in the meantime, we see a pretty unsettled mood across Europe and Asia, too, led by uneven recovery in economic data. European services activity, though, rising to a three-year high. UK services growth hit a 24-year high as lockdowns eased there. Those economies bouncing back clearly in the services sector Growth in China's services sector, meanwhile, slowing a little last month due to, yes, higher costs and weaker overseas demand. Services, however, just to give you some perspective, still expanding for a 13th straight month. Okay, let's get to the drivers. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu criticizing a coalition agreement by opposition leaders. He's urging supporters to oppose what he calls a dangerous left-wing government, Hadass Gold, is live in Jerusalem for us. Hadass, I'm not quite sure how he gets there, given that the prime minister in waiting now is to the right of him politically. But uh, it is a coalition, it seems, united in their desire to see the prime minister ousted. Talk us through what happens in the coming days and the what next. 
Well, it's definitely history was made in the last 24 hours, last night, 38 minutes before the deadline. Uh, Yair Lapid, the centrist leader, was able to inform the Israeli president that he had managed to form a coalition with a very diverse. It is the most diverse coalition in Israeli history. As you noted, it will be uh, first led by uh, the first prime minister will be Naftali Bennett of the Amina party. He's actually a former Netanyahu chief of staff, described in some ways as even further right than Netanyahu himself on certain policies, especially when it comes to uh, West Bank settlements. But the coalition will also include the far left, the Meretz party. And in a, a making history last night, this coalition will also include an Arab Israeli party, the United Arab. This is the first time in Israeli history that an Arab Israeli party has signed on to a coalition. So just think about what sort of government this will be, what sort of coalition this will be. You have everybody from the far left to the far right and an Arab-Israeli uh, party all sitting together on the same government. As you noted, it seems as though not much may unite them other than the fact that they want to see Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu out the door. So this may be a fragile coalition to start. We'll have to see if they do manage to get to government, how they will be able to govern on substantive issues, especially when it comes to things like relations with the Palestinians, if there will be any sort of advancement on those issues. But they still have a hurdle to to get over before they can actually be sworn in. And that is a confidence vote in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, which should take place on or before June 14th. There is an effort actually now underway by these uh, coalition parties to try and oust the current speaker of the parliament because they believe that that speaker might try to delay the vote and they want to get this vote through as soon as possible because every day that goes by this vote is not taken gives Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu more time to try to twist the arms of members of parliament to try to get them to drop out from this coalition. And he only needs a handful of to drop out to cause this coalition to crumble. As you noted, he has already started this campaign in a tweet earlier today. He said that all right-wing Knesset members must oppose what he's calling a dangerous left-wing government. He has said that such a government would be a threat to Israeli security. A little bit ironic, as you noted before, considering who is going to be part of this coalition, including his former chief of staff, Naftali Bennett, would be the prime minister to start off with a part of a rotating leadership deal. And he, on certain issues, is further right of Netanyahu. But when it comes to Israeli politics, when it comes to Benjamin Netanyahu, you can never say never. And so we will have to see what happens in the next few days if he does manage to get a few of these members to drop out that could potentially cause this coalition to crumble and give Netanyahu a lifeline to potentially stay in power. Yes, Netanyahu not out yet. Hadas Gold, we will watch this space. Thank you so much for that update there. Okay, the United States telling Russia stop the cyber attacks. Secretary of State Tony Blinken telling CNN Espanol exclusively that Russia has an obligation to stop attacks like those on the JBS meatpacking company and the Colonial Pipeline. JBS says all of its plants around the world should be up and running again today. Alex Marquardt has more on this from Washington. And Alex, just for our viewers very quickly, this for me was the killer question and answer from yesterday with President Biden. Mr. President, will you retaliate against Russia for this latest ransomware attack? We're looking closely at that issue. Do you think Putin is testing you? No. Mr. No, Alex. I mean, we can debate the politics here, but whichever way you try and look at it, infrastructure in the United States and beyond is being tested with these cyber attacks. And unfortunately, it's failing. 
Yeah, Julia, I mean, that really says it all. The U.S. has not figured out how to stop Russia from carrying out these attacks, whether it's from government hackers, like in the case of SolarWinds, um, or from criminal uh, attackers, like in the case of the Colonial Pipeline recently and now JBS Foods. And oftentimes, you know, some of those lines are are quite blurry. Uh, the, The Biden administration has said that they have after this most recent attack, they went uh, to Moscow and, and essentially said, knock it off. One of the things that the White House says that they're doing is to try to get together, to band together with other countries, to hold countries like Russia to account uh, for harboring uh, cyber criminals, like those who have carried out these two last major ransomware attacks here in the United States against critical infrastructure that have had a, a real impact and, and really crippled operations for these two uh, companies. Um, and what we are hearing from the White House now is, is less about Russia, but more about how companies here in the United States and around the world can protect themselves. Um, the White House today has written a letter, an open letter to business leaders and corporate executives uh, calling on them to fortify their defenses, to, to modernize their, their cybersecurity. Uh, the Biden administration is saying we are doing all that we can. Now we need you to step up and, and, and do what you can. You need to understand how significant uh, this threat is. Uh, Ann Neuberger, who is the top cyber official at the National Security Council, wrote this open letter. Um, and this is part of it. She writes, all organizations must recognize that no company is safe from being targeted by ransomware, regardless of size or location. We urge you to take ransomware crime seriously and in- ensure your corporate cyber defenses match the threat. Uh, Julia, a White House official told me that it's not just this recent spike in ransomware attacks that prompted this letter, but it's really uh, a change in tactics um, from one that was had, had been primarily about, about stealing data to one that is now, you know, striking um, at these critical companies. And, and this is an extremely lucrative uh, industry, as you and I have discussed, for these criminals. Um, in the case of JBS, yes, they may be up and almost at full capacity today, they say. We still have not heard uh, whether they have paid a ransom, like Colonial Pipeline did, more than $4 million to get their operations uh, their systems back up and running. So that is that is a major burning question. You know, it's very difficult for governments to tell companies don't pay these ransoms when obviously the first priority for these companies is to be able to operate. Julia? You raise so many great points. And the one that I wanted to pull out there and I wasn't expecting to was what you said about data because ransomware now is a business. It's a huge business and it's a growing business. And you don't even need to worry about the security of your data now. All you have to do is tie it up for a while ask for a ransom, and if it's critical infrastructure, as we've seen with the likes of the Colonial Pipeline, people pay the ransom. And we don't know in this case whether or not a ransom was paid, but I give you a good guess. Yeah, I mean, it, for, 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 for most of our audience, I think they, they hear about these stories, these major ransomware attacks, and, and that was a great reminder. I mean, this is a very simple operation. Hackers essentially take over these systems. They tell the companies, all right, we're going to hold on to this. Uh, on, onto your systems, onto your data until you pay us X amount of money. And if you don't, we'll release it. And so we hear about these, these attacks generally when it's huge, like Colonial Pipeline or, or JBS, which is one of the biggest uh, food production companies in the world. But Julia, this is happening every single day. It's happening across sectors. It's happening across the U.S. and, and all around the world. And it hits, you know, really, um, really, really critical parts of society, hospitals, schools, and oftentimes um, you know, the ransom is not paid. And we see that data then released online. And, you know, when these ransoms are paid, obviously that further incentivizes uh, hackers to continue carrying out these attacks. It's a very complex problem for, co- for 
companies and for countries to try to figure out. Julia. Yeah. At some point, we'll be asking whether our hospitals, our cities, uh, our military, our government is vulnerable to these cyber attacks and then realize, hang on a second, they've all been targeted in the last 12 months and not just in the United States, but beyond. And we didn't do enough and it's accelerating. Alex, great to have you with us. Thank Thank you. you. Alex Marcotte there. Okay, let's move on. The meme stock saga beginning to feel like it's worthy of the big screen in its own right. And the latest sequel is not disappointing the shares of movie theatre chain AMC. They are now plunging pre-market after a stunning surge of more than 90% on Wednesday. Paula Monica is here. Paul, I'm already smiling, but it's actually not funny. Just tracking the timeline of what's happened over the last three days. AMC issue shares, then they come out and make an outreach to retail investors. And now they're issuing more shares. Yeah, it's uh, a stunning drama, obviously, for for AMC right now. But uh, the stock is uh, off its lows uh, in pre-market trading. It's not down as much as it was earlier. And I think you continue to have this battle between retail investors that are long the stock that think that raising more capital through these stock sales will be a good thing and short sellers who are worried about the fundamentals and, uh, you know, AMC going up as much as it did yesterday inflicted a lot of pain on uh, short sellers. I mean, billions of dollars lost by the shorts because the stock nearly doubled. But this can't go on indefinitely. And you're starting to see some of the other Reddit-loved stocks pulling back a little bit as well. GameStop and Bed Bath & Beyond. Interestingly, BlackBerry is still surging, though. So maybe the uh, Wall Street Bets crowd has found a new favorite chew toy, if you will. I was looking at valuations, actually, in the pre-market trading session this morning. At one point, it was bigger than L Brands. It was bigger than Viacom. It was bigger than United Airlines. I think it was actually bigger than half of the S&P 500 companies. And for a long-term investor, when your stock is doing so well, it makes sense to raise money if you want to invest in uh, restructuring or whatever it is that you want to do as a company. For a short-term investor here, this is not investing. What we are seeing here is not investing. This is something that you do no. in a casino and it feels like gambling. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, putting all your money on one number at a roulette wheel. It clearly is very risky. And what worries me is that there are so many people that when you read these Reddit boards and the fans, how you know ravenous and they are rapidly promoting AMC, The thing that strikes me is that a lot of these people seem to think that this time is different. And as someone who's been doing this for more than 25 years, every time you hear this time is different, that means that, no, it's exactly like the past. Julia, water is still wet. The sky is still blue. No matter what AMC longs want to say, there are going to be consequences for having a stock run up this dramatically when the fundamentals are still poor. Are they going to improve as the economy reopens? Perhaps, but there's a lot of competition in the movie theater business. AMC isn't the only company out there, but AMC is the only stock that's gone up to this ridiculous level. Yeah, pass the free popcorn and just be a little bit careful because if you overheat popcorn, it explodes. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Yes. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The president of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics says it's impossible to postpone the Games again because of all the preparations. That's despite Japan's chief COVID-19 expert warning this week that holding the Games while coronavirus is still spreading is, quote, not normal. CNN's Lena Wang 
joins us now from Tokyo. Not normal is probably the understatement of the week, but we will continue to talk about this. At the same time, we've seen a whole swathe of volunteers that admittedly may not be needed say, we're not volunteering for this. Julie, exactly. We're seeing these conflicting narratives right now as the officials are pushing forward the rhetoric that these games can be held safely. More and more concern from the medical community, including from the head of Japan's COVID-19 task force prevention. And on top of that, you have the announcement that 10,000 out of 80,000 Olympic volunteers have quit. A big concern among these volunteers is the lack of protection. I spoke to one Olympic volunteer who told me that she's worried about her own health and that the only protection they've been given is pretty much hand sanitizer, cloth masks, and a pamphlet about social distancing measures. They're also being asked to take public transportation between the Olympic venues and their homes. Take a listen to what she had to say here. We are not being given neither testing nor a vaccine. So, and we have to go in and out of the bubble at all times. Do you think the Olympics should be held this year? No, no, absolutely no, no. It's too dangerous. And I think it's absolutely the wrong message at a time when the world is suffering, at a time when the virus is still going rampant in many countries. So, Julia, the big question is, how is it possible to have a safe Olympic bubble when you have these tens of thousands of untested, unvaccinated volunteers traveling between their homes and these venues? And at the same time, you have much of the Japanese population unprotected. Just about 3% of the Japanese population has been fully vaccinated. This pace is starting to slowly creep up, but it still lags far behind other developed countries when it comes to the vaccine rollout. A big issue for Japan right now is the lack of medical staff to administer these vaccines. In earlier phases, the big issue for Japan was securing enough supply, a bureaucratic system, as well as a slow vaccine approval process. But a supply issue is no longer the problem. Now it is a lack of manpower. But we are seeing these mass vaccination sites start to pop out across the country. The government also says they're going to start vaccinations at workplaces and universities. But right now, only medical workers and the elderly population are eligible. The government has, however, started also vaccinating Japan's Olympic athletes, which has drawn some criticism since they are jumping the line ahead of those with underlying medical conditions. There is no timeline as of now for when the rest of the adult population is going to be eligible, which is what is driving a lot of these concerns. When I speak to Japanese people on the streets here, they say that they are fearful of how this Olympic could lead to further infection spreads across the country and could hurt them and their health. Yeah, significant worries and understandable, I think. Selena Wang in Tokyo there. Thank you for that. Okay, the White House is expected to announce more details about its plan to share COVID vaccines worldwide. Sources tell CNN an announcement could come as early as today, and it will specify which countries will get the vaccines. The U.S. has pledged 80 million doses from Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. President Biden also kicking off an ambitious National Month of Action quote to get 70 percent of Americans fully or partially vaccinated by the July 4th holiday. President Biden promising all U.S. adults a free round of beer donated by Anheuser-Busch if the U.S. hits that goal. An estimated 51 percent of Americans are at least partially vaccinated so far. Okay, still ahead on First Move, fashion designer Parol Gurung 
joins us live to talk about the COVID crisis in his beloved Nepal. And later, when Vintage meets Vogue, Etsy snaps up Gen Z favorite, Depop. We've got the CEO. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and to Nepal, where lockdown is being extended in the capital, Kathmandu, and surrounding districts. New international aid arrived this week as Nepal battles its latest COVID wave, and daily cases are now decreasing, which is the good news. But this, as the country denies reports of a new local variant, something backed up by the World Health Organization's office there. Much to discuss. And joining us now is renowned fashion designer Prabal Gurung, who's working to help get aid to Nepal. It's, sir, it's fantastic to have you on the show. A huge privilege. And I know this is incredibly personal for you. Just explain why you're working so hard to try and support the aid effort in Nepal. Thank you, first of all, for having me here. You know, it's a humanitarian crisis what we, Nepal is going through and what we all are going through. But what's happening in Nepal is not only the crisis there, but the complete invisibility of a country and its people. You know, um, it's really funny that again, I live in America and we're fighting for with all this Asian hate attack that's happening. We're constantly having this conversation about invisibility. And right now, that's what Nepal is going through. It's, you know, sandwiched between the two giants, India and China, the cases that are like really rising there it's um, you know it's hovering around 40 percent and um, 8,000 daily cases and yet the attention from the world doesn't seem to be on the um, crisis there so you know I'm just trying to get people to care to bring attention to it you know and just like urging us to be the moral leader that they've always been so that's why I'm here and you grew up there so this is incredibly personal between Nepal and India too so you understand some of the challenges there. You understand also the strength, I think, of the people there. And we're trying to help you shed some light on it, too, because no one should be forgotten in this crisis. Talk to me about what you're doing in terms of providing aid, getting oxygen supplies there, too, and how you ensure, because this is the big thing for people donating, how you ensure that you get the supplies to where they're needed. Well, you know, I've been working with this team, with Nepal Rising team, and they're, what we're doing, there have been a lot of like oxygen and um, concentrators and, you know, um, cylinders and medical supplies and everything. We're working on the ground with the local people there. And, you know, the, the thing about Nepal that often people often forget is unlike here in, in let's say, in the U.S. or in other parts of Europe and the U.K., People are really willing to, they're not anti-vaccine, they're willing to take the vaccine and they're like, and the groundwork, the network of the people that can re- reach to the remote places, it's pretty incredible. So we are trying to, you know, sometimes the government doesn't really live, live up to the expectations or the promise that they, you know, to, made to the people. So we as volunteers and working with the people on the ground, we've been trying to get as much supplies and everything and attention to there. But the main goal right now, what we're trying to do with all the petition letters and everything is to really urge U.S. and the rest of the world to, you know, make sure that Nepal is not forgetting, forgotten when they are distributing the vaccines. You know, we are looking for 20 million. And, as, and, and so we are very, very hopeful that, you know, as President Biden announces it, there will be some kind of like, you know, Nepal wouldn't be forgotten. That is our main goal is like, you know, oftentimes when people don't even know where that is, you know, <laughs> um, I just wanted to make sure that we all are wanting to make sure that, you know, this vaccine distribution, we are on top of the list as well. Nepal's voice is heard. Um, you live in America as an activist, as a yeah. philanthropist. Um, how do you feel when you read that people are being 
paid money or being paid in beer or there's a lottery going on in the United States to try and get people to take vaccines. And to your point, you're trying to just raise the flag and say, hey, there are other nations around the world that haven't got those supplies, perhaps can't even afford them. And we need them to go there, too. How does it feel? Um, it breaks my heart, to be completely honest. And I, don't, I mean, like, it's very emotional, as you're saying, that the the hard fact of it's it's a... You know, everyone says, you know, this pandemic is an you know, equalizer. It really isn't. It is a mirror to the world where the, the difference between they have and they have not. And that is a hard fact, the invisibility also. But so when I hear all these people here in America, you know, like having to be enticed or the rest of the world, I'm like, there are people dying. There are people dying left, right and center and not to be even care about that and not even to be responsible because Getting vaccinated is not just, you know, um, um, it's no longer a privilege. It is something that it's the right thing to do. So it breaks my heart, to be completely on honest. It breaks my heart because there's so many people dying to get it. And in a country like Nepal, that is like majority of the population is willing to take it and do not have access to that. It is just heartbreaking. I love your passion. Um, something else that you've used your platform for and your uh, fashion prowess is, and you've touched on it already, is anti-Asian crime. And you wrote an op-ed for, for CNN, which really resonated with me. And uh, you pointed out a time in your career where you were told that you don't look American and therefore how can you define American culture? You also talked about your mother and, and making her wear a wig to go outside because you were frightened that she might be harmed outside. How do we make society more tolerant? Because I know this is something else that you're incredibly passionate about and are fighting for. You know, the more stories the more from our community or the minorities and marginalized groups you, we get to, the world gets to hear, the more normalized we become, more empathy we em, empathetic we become. I think it's very important that our stories are told by the platform that can share the mic, hear our story, and not just during heritage months and not just during like, you know, festivals, but throughout the whole, you know, whole year. Because... I always keep on saying, this, especially in fashion also, you know, what have we been described, like what's chic, what's beautiful, what's, um, you know, uh, cool. It's always coming from a Eurocentric colonial lens. We have to dismantle that and, you know, really examine that and then insert our stories whenever, wherever, wherever our white counterparts are. My goal here is not to exclude anyone, you know, because I have an incredible support system from my white friends and white um, mentors, and they are really interested in coming together. And they keep on asking me that. And I always say, here are our stories. Give us the platform. We are building our own tables, right? But also give us a seat at the table to make those decisions. Um, and, you know, once you see the faces, once you hear the thing, and you know, it, it becomes more normal. You feel empathetic. And I genuinely believe, I genuinely believe that there will be less violence, um, you know, when it comes to that. We can only hope and keep spreading the word and doing what you do. We're I'm grateful to have you on the show and come back soon because I see it in your fashion and what you do there. So come back and talk to us in the business, hopefully in better times. Absolutely. Have a good run there. Anytime. Thank you so much. Likewise. Yeah. We'll see you soon. Thank you. And the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running this Thursday, the day before Jobs Day in the United States. And a tough job ahead for the Wall Street Bulls, a continuation of yesterday's weakness, despite some encouraging new employment data. Almost one million private sector positions added to the U.S. economy last month, a greater number than expected. 
Also, jobless claims have fallen below 400,000 for the first time since the pandemic. Claims now down more than 30% since April, but it is a risk-off day for some of the riskiest U.S. stocks. AMC softer after its 100% popcorn pop on Wednesday. The cinema chain announcing plans to sell more than 11 million new shares. GameStop and yesterday's big high flyer Bed Bath & Beyond are also losing some ground here too. The dollar though, meanwhile, holding steady against the Russian ruble. The Russian foreign minister announcing that the country will sell all dollar assets in its wealth fund and invest in other assets like the euro instead. That is going to take some time, so that explains the lack of reaction and we're talking years. A further pop, or should we say depop, for Etsy shares today after Wednesday's 7% rise as investors cheer its acquisition of depop. Now, just to explain, depop is a Gen Z-powered fashion resale company with around 30 million registered users in over 150 countries. Etsy, a marketplace for vintage and handmade products, is expanding into the booming used clothing market, targeting younger shoppers. Joining us now, Etsy CEO Josh Silverman. Josh, fantastic to have you on the show. It's not often, actually, the acquiring company has a share price reaction like that. So investors clearly like it. Tell us what they think and see in this deal. Yeah, well, I think they think and see what we do, which is I think it's a fantastic partnership. It's a marriage made in heaven. We think that Depop is the most exciting company in the most exciting space in retail. Resale is absolutely booming. It speaks to a younger generation and within the younger generation, within Gen Z, Depop is their choice. And so we're incredibly excited to partner with them. We think there's great synergies between the two businesses and and we think it's going to be a fantastic partnership. Maria Raga, who's the um, chief executive of, of Depop, said that Etsy's made massive improvements in terms of search and discovery. And that's something that we can learn from just in terms of scaling their business. What do you learn from or is it simply about that younger generation of customers, perhaps, that could in future be Etsy users, if not immediately? Getting a two-sided marketplace like Etsy or like Depop to scale is lightning in a bottle. It almost never happens. Mm. Once it happens, that two-sided marketplace is incredibly valuable. But there's many capabilities that these two-sided marketplaces have in common. You need to make search and discovery work at scale. You need to run a massive payments platform. You need to make trust and safety work at scale. You need member support and on and on. And so there's so much that we can share and learn from each other. And I think there's quite a lot of know-how that Etsy has that we can use to help make Depop even stronger. And, you know, a case in point is Reverb. That's another two-sided marketplace that Etsy acquired about 18 months ago. And even within 18 months, Etsy has helped Reverb to substantially increase their gross margins, then reinvest that profit into marketing and even more efficiently to grow even faster. And it's that kind of uh, opportunity that we see with Depop as well. Yeah, I mean, when I look at some of the numbers, I mean, I mentioned them in the introduction, 30 million registered users. But in 2020, there were 4 million active buyers, 2 million active sellers. Can you give us any sense of just what you're imagining in terms of bringing those numbers higher just through whether it's accessibility, as you said, the the payments platform opportunity, just making it easier, quite frankly, for users to buy and sell? Depop is still a very young company and it's growing like crazy. So Depop grew about 100% in 2020, and it did that with almost no marketing money. So as you said, we have a 
Depop has about 2 million sellers and 4 million buyers. And what's so exciting is that the sellers are very often buyers. In fact, 75% of sellers are buyers, and many of the buyers are also sellers. The engagement uh, metrics on the platform are also really compelling. The average active user is on the app 40 times per month. So this is a really sticky, highly engaged community. And if you talk to teenagers in your network, you're going to find that they know Depop and they love Depop. But there is still so much room for growth. About a quarter of the global workforce is already Gen Z. These are people 26 years or younger. And it's projected that by 2030, there will be 1.3 billion members of Gen Z that are in the global workforce. So we think there's an enormous opportunity to grow and to scale. I get the opportunity. I also be, see big competition in this space for the sort of resale market, whether it's retailers like Walmart, Nordstrom, Gap. They're all getting in on the action because they're recognizing that, to your point, Gen Z or Gen Z, because someone's going to tell me off for sounding American, um, they like the sustainability aspect of this. They like parts of the segment of this business. And to your point, it's growing far quicker than ordinary retail. How concerned are you by the competition, some of these big, well-known brand players getting into this space too? There is a lot of competition and there's been a lot of competition and yet Depop is growing at phenomenal rates. Why? Because they speak to Gen Z. They speak the language of Gen Z and they're an authentic organic brand. And again, they're growing at these phenomenal rates with hardly any investment in marketing yet because influencers and, and, and members of Gen Z really believe in the brand. The other brands you mentioned are not brands that speak to Gen Z and feel really authentic. So that's, that's what we love about uh, Depop. We think the management team and the entire uh, employee base of, of Depop really understand Gen Z and building a community around Gen Z is really unique and really special. People come for the clothing, but they stay for the community. Talk about Etsy growth as well as we transition post-pandemic, she says, fingers crossed, because there was a clearly a great deal of interest, whether it was products or simply time spent on the platform during this period. How do you see that playing out in the coming months? And I also saw that vaccination products are now hot in the same way that masks were in the beginning of the pandemic. Now, proving that you've had a vaccine with apparel is, is cool. Talk to me about those two things, please. The agility of the Etsy marketplace is really remarkable. And I think if if we saw anything in 2020, we saw that the Etsy marketplace is amazingly agile. Whatever is a hot or front of mind for consumers, if you can imagine it, it's for sale on Etsy. So I've already been vaccinated, kinds of gear, you're right, that's very hot in the moment, as are, for example, outdoor and gardening uh, uh, merchandise and all, all of that kind of thing. Uh, you know, when we look at the growth, what we projected for the second quarter is that at the midpoint of guidance, there would be about $3 billion of products bought and sold on Etsy in the second quarter of, of 2021. And when we look at the same quarter pre-pandemic, so 2Q 2019, we, we did about $1 billion of sales. So Etsy comes through the pandemic about three times larger. That means millions more buyers who love Etsy and are coming back to Etsy and have formed a habit around Etsy and millions more sellers. The great thing about a two-sided marketplace is it gets better as it gets bigger. So we think we're extremely well positioned for continued growth. Josh, congratulations on the deal and come back and speak to us soon, please. Josh Silverman, Thank CEO so of Etsy there. Thank you. Okay, still to come here on First Move, making learning lifelong. India's leading online education platform expanding into North America. We speak to its co-founder next.
Welcome back to First Move. If you're joining us from India, you've probably heard of Baiju's. It's a $15 billion startup online learning platform used by around 100 million people worldwide, including one in three students in India, according to the company. Baiju's has some notable backers, including the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, NASPERS and Tiger Global. Well, now the company is expanding its presence in North America with an investment of $1 billion over the next three years. And joining us to discuss is Divya Gopinath. She's co-founder of Baiju's and she's joining us now from Bangalore, India. Divya, fantastic to have you on the show. I am so excited. Um, We'll talk about the investment in North America, but I just wanted to take a step back and have you explain what it is that you're doing in India and why it resonates with so many students there. So I think always we've been on a mission to help students learn better, to fall in love with learning. Even when we started doing what we did, we knew that we needed to create an impact in the way students learn when they learn concepts for the first time. And that was the mission behind creating what we created. Now, in the last five years, we've seen 100 million students use it, especially so in the last one year when schools shut down. And just to give you numbers, right, in the first Four years since we launched the app, there were 45 million students on the platform. But just in the last one, 13 months, you can say, there were 55 million more. This actually shows how online learning has been put in the spotlight, how people are students, all stakeholders are slowly realizing the importance of online learning, how it helps them learn better. So we've enabled students to become self-learners, uh, learners driven by not just the fear, not by the fear of exams, but for the by the love for learning. And that's been the thinking behind every product that we've created. And uh, this is the same thing that we want to do as we expand globally. We want to continue to impact many, many more learners. And uh, th- that's been our mission. Is it like a one stop shop or is it a supplement to what you can learn in school, for example, because as you point out, everybody, I think, has had a crash course in trying to study online from home. And some of the concerns have been people getting disengaged, too many portals to go to to try and find which subject I'm studying. How have you made all that simple in order to keep students engaged and willing to be lifelong learners? Yes. So it's complementary to the school system. So this is the time uh, when a student learns on their own at home that the product comes in. Now, that being said, uh, you're absolutely right about, you know, especially now all the kids are very digitally savvy and there are so many options and you can get distracted very easily. That is where the kind of format of online learning becomes important. See, it's not just about taking offline learning online. That's not online learning. Online learning is about giving the content in the right kind of format, in a very engaging format so that students enjoy while they learn so that they remain engaged. And and our numbers show that students love learning. You know, so the engagement was up to 100 minutes per session on the app, especially during the pandemic. And uh, it's if I have to use an analogy, it's almost like how do you give them, uh, how do you introduce them to the chocolate coating before giving them the broccoli, right? So it's about how can you make them enjoy what they how do you make them enjoy what they do so that uh, they continue doing it? And once they start enjoying it, they become self-learners. They know that they need to turn here. Now, that being said, Julia, you rightly pointed out about, you know, the last one year has introduced us to online learning. But I don't think the future of learning is going to be completely online because there are so many skills which can be uh, only taught in an offline world, like especially for the K-12 segment where children are growing up, where an all-round development is very important, where there is an importance of social skills like empathy, team building skills. All of this can only be learned offline. But there are subjects like math and science. 
because of the use of technology because i am a teacher myself uh, technology has made me a better teacher mm. it, a student can actually learn better even better online a few subjects you know the chocolate in everything that you just said there for me was the idea that online learning isn't just taking offline learning and sticking it on a computer because that's simply not going to work it has to be complementary in some way and adapted to keep people engaged um i love this okay talk to me about the united states what difference do you think you can make in the united states and perhaps that isn't already being done by online education companies in the united states already because i can think of a couple yes so as we expand uh, into the united states we we are looking at growing both organically and inorganically that is where the investment actually matters where we are going we are looking at companies which are a product fit and also help us in the content distribution so we're looking at uh, both the routes and one example of a company that we've actually acquired is osmo and uh, and it's it's been very complimentary it's not the, and i would not not like to call them acquisitions i would like to call them integrations because uh, it is a team is a great fit the product is a great fit and what comes out is something even better for students to learn from uh, just to give you an example when we acquired osmo uh, they've scaled 4x uh, and i i don't think we should take credit for it it's just that the, the team's been fantastic and we've complemented each other and that's what we're even looking for as we as we go forward where we look at some fantastic companies to work with uh, where we integrate the leadership where we integrate the products and come out with a much better offering so there are two ways to look at it right we can also say that okay look we know everything but uh, the fact is there are certain things uh, that we are good at and there are certain things that uh, we can adapt to we can uh, we can do better if we have the right kind of product with us the right kind of team with us and as we grow that's the plan so the aspiration is to continue to create uh, uh, you know self motivated learners the students who love learning wherever whichever part of the uh, world we go to and uh, that's true to america as well you know i got so excited in this conversation i didn't ask you the most important question which was cost and we have about 20 seconds. Divya, can you tell me about the cost in about 20 seconds? How expensive is it to do these courses? So it costs about uh, $150 per year uh, to do these courses. So we have two models. One is uh, the asynchronous model which is our flagship learning app which is used by 100 million students in India. The other one is a synchronous learning model and I'm very excited about that because there we're enabling 11,000 plus women teachers Uh, to teach from the comfort of their home so we're using a very unemployed under underemployed uh, group of people because and and the statistics show that uh, even though half our graduates are women only 23% of them are actually in the workforce so these women are actually taking education uh, from india to the world and i i strongly believe the golden age of teaching is coming back awesome it was the longest 20 seconds ever but it was all worth it come back because i have plenty more questions and i love what you're doing Give you a fantastic to speak to you, co-founder of Byju's. There, good luck with the expansion. More next. Stay Thank you, Jules. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. The vast majority of people who live in South Africa are black. Yet, Isuzu Motors in South Africa only recently named its first black CEO and managing director. CNN's Eleni Jokos talked with Billy Tom about what it means to be first and what Africans are equipped to bring to the auto components industry. So you've been in the the job for now almost a year as CEO and it's what what is also shocking is that you're the first black person to hold this executive role of a international OEM in Africa why do you think it's taken this long Look firstly before I answer your question I think the the, the challenge I have myself and I'm I'm always keeping myself honest is to say I'll be being the first um 
black CEO, you become the poster child for this, but what poster child do you want to be? Um, because you also want to create and position yourself so that people become more aspirational in, in, in moving, in move, in moving and, and, and um, uh, you know, fulfilling the, the, the roles going forward. South Africa has had over 100 years in experiencing mm. you know, with mm. assembly and then eventually mm. the component industry started mm. growing. Mm. But how do we speed that up in, now, today, in the African context? You can't just treat South Africa as one country. You've got to look at the economic clusters. You've got SADC, where South Africa operates. You've got East Africa, you've got West Africa. Your approach needs to be by economic cluster, where you go into the economic cluster, do a lot of developmental work, and then grow your scale. What is the starting point when you're going into such a new territory with the automotive sector starting from zero? You need to build scale first. So what you do is you start with semi-knockdown which is a light um, assembly. The scale is very important because what you want to avoid is to have to build factories and a few years down the line you close them because there's no demand. So you want to build scale, ensure that the numbers are increased. It's critical that we pass our learnings because my view is African, Africans need to dictate the pace of Africa. The fur has really been flying for Dogecoin investors this week. Dogecoin steady amid a broader risk off market environment, but it was a crypto Romeo yesterday soaring 25% as Coinbase expands its Dogecoin offerings. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Forget howling at the moon. Doge, Dogecoin, I'm getting it wrong, going to, the, going to the moon. That was not investment advice, by the way, despite my stumbling. Talk us through what happened yesterday and the difference between Coinbase and Coinbase Pro, because that feels important yeah. here too. Yeah, Julia. So this is this is big news for for Dogecoin investors. It started the week around twenty nine cents. It went up to about forty three uh, on the news of its inclusion in Coinbase Pro. It's now back around forty cents, but still significant gain uh, on the week. Now, inclusion in Coinbase uh, and in particular Coinbase Pro lends it some legitimacy. Legitimacy, obviously, this is one of the main crypto trading platforms. The difference between Coinbase and Coinbase Pro. Well, Coinbase Pro is really aimed at sort of more advanced. Uh, experienced investors. It's a different interface. It looks more terminal-like. It's also free to join, but but it's slightly different in terms of more complicated trades are offered uh, and things like that, advanced charting tools and all that, that those kinds of things. Slightly sort of less user-friendly, perhaps, than Coinbase. But but this is part of Coinbase's mission. The, the CEO has said that adding more and more assets is really part of their vision for the future. His first question on Coinbase's first earnings call uh, back in May was, when was Doge going to be added? And he said at the time that it would take six to eight weeks, but it was part of their plans. It's been exactly four weeks. So, so an exciting day, Julia, for for Dogecoin investors. They were working like dogs in order to do that, as we, uh, <laughs> as we can imagine, not just to do it in a shorter time frame. So what did the Doge father, Elon Musk, have to say about this? Because I'm sure he weighed in too. Oh, plenty. Yes, yes. He's uh, several interesting tweets. One was that he sort of retweeted something that he tweeted uh, in, the, in the past few months about Dogecoin, which was a meme uh, showing a sort of cloud with the Shiba Inu dog in it approaching a city labeled the global financial system, uh, sort of symbolizing Dogecoin's uh, takeover. He labeled that uh, with the caption, it's inevitable. Uh, another tweet, Julia, which, which I know uh, that you're keen to, to talk about is, is one of him. He said, this is a picture I found of me uh, as a child where he, he, he showed the same dog sitting in front of a sort of old fashioned computer screen with cassette tapes 
lying around. So, so he's clearly sort of still, uh, you know, keen on the narrative that Dogecoin, sort of the underdog of the crypto world, has the potential uh, to become a really big deal. And he continues to put his backing behind it. That, uh, in part, contributed to the rally that we saw this week. I have no words. But I loved the caption on there. That, that definitely did resonate with me, this idea that you have to keep your uh, passion uh, under wraps, otherwise you'll be socially ostracised. I mean, I feel like that all the time. Every time I open my mouth, quite frankly, it's always... Um, <laughs> you have to be careful. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much for that, my crypto queen. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN as always. And in the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.